All right, we're going to begin in the book of Acts this morning. I'm very excited about this. Um, Acts chapter 1, we're going to spend months going through all the way to Acts chapter 12. We will then go back to Isaiah and finish Isaiah, and we're going to keep going until we finish both of these books. But the book of Acts is the account of the early church. And I think it's particularly important that we revisit this account. We studied this in small groups before this church began. But we're now in a very different place in the life of this church. So much larger than we used to be and so much different in certain ways than we used to be. But it is absolutely important at this stage in the life of the church that we don't lose sight of what the early church was. This church was founded explicitly desiring to have the pattern of the early church remain with us that we might live in this way. And so we're going to revisit this. The history that we will see in the book of Acts is not just history, it is our history. It is the history of the Christian church. It is the history of those brothers and sisters, the earliest disciples of Jesus, who were bearing witness about the resurrection of Jesus. It is important to realize that it is ancient history, almost 2,000 years ago. And if you've been in this church long, you've heard me say this before, that we do not walk in a new way, and we are not seeking a new thing. We walk in an ancient path, and we follow after Jesus Christ, who has risen from the dead and is ascended into heaven, as we will see this morning. They were living in light of the truth of Jesus in the same way that we do now. We are the same as our ancient brethren. We are disciples of Jesus Christ. We are full of faith to follow after Jesus and that we will continue to follow after him until one of two things happens. We either breathe our last and die and go to be with him or he comes again. This was the same determination that each one of these brothers and sisters in the early church had and it's the same determination that we have now in our day. It is the history of establishing the early church. It is the expansion of the people of God from Israel alone to all those who would believe in Jesus Christ as Lord, both Jew and Gentile. Gentile meaning everyone in the world that is not Jewish. And so there is an expansion of the work of the Lord in what is called the church. What you're going to see throughout the book of Acts is that the church is not a building. It is not a building campaign of people going out to build more places for Jesus. The church is the people. It is the ecclesia. It's the body of Christ. It's the gathering of Christians. It's what is happening here this morning. It is believing people in the church coming together for the sake of Jesus Christ. And there is so much to learn about that. But what we must understand is that we don't go to church. We are the church. And when you are able to make that transition in your thinking, you're going to be in a very different place as a Christian. You don't come here to attend something or to consume something. You, as a follower of Jesus Christ, you are a part of what is happening. And you are a part of the work of the Lord Jesus in our place and in our time. Coming to salvation in Jesus Christ is not something that we add to our life. It is the defining essence of our life, of who we are. We are followers of Jesus Christ. You're going to see the people that come to salvation in the book of Acts pass from death to life. They go from being blind to being able to see, from being enslaved to sin to being freed from their sins, from being deceived to having a clear knowledge of the truth. 
from being those that were lost to those that are found and on a clear path into the kingdom of God. Those who were deaf to those who hear clearly the voice of the good shepherd. Those that were starving and weary in their soul to those that are filled up with living water and the bread of life in Jesus Christ. Those who were walking in darkness now seeing a great light and walking by the light of Christ Jesus. And as these people follow after Christ, old things pass away and behold, all things new have come. The old man passing away, a new man coming. This is the record of the book of Acts. This is what is happening with the people that are coming to salvation. And it's important that we contrast this. I mean, just this past week, they're out all the time, but I read a really good article about uh, you know, church in America. And it's all about the consumerism of are people coming enough or are they not coming enough? Or why are people attending church less? Well, it's because they were not ever changed by Jesus Christ. They've not ever come to salvation. The, the people in this book that we're going to read don't come as consumers. They don't come scoring Jesus or the apostles on how well they spoke or whether or not they met their needs or whether or not uh, the, 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 the atmosphere of the church was all that they hoped it would be and all these types of things that we do in America today. But they came with hunger and thirst in their souls. And they came and they heard a powerful message of salvation, strengthened and made possible by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about the Holy Spirit over the next months because the Holy Spirit is the power of God making possible the work of the church. And so we will see a significant contrast between where they were and where we are now so often in America. The date of these things happening in the book of the Acts of the Apostles is A.D. 33 to 64. So it's just after the resurrection, and we'll see this morning the ascension of Christ, up to the end of Paul's missionary journey. It's astonishing how much happens in 30 years in this book. How we go from 12 discouraged apostles uh, to, well actually 11, we're going to add 12 in this book, back to 12, uh, all the way to the ends of the earth. The author is Luke. We spent a lot of months going through the gospel of Luke. Well, this is the same author, but a different book because there is a transition. Luke was a physician. We know from Colossians chapter 4, verse 14, that he was a physician, but that's about all we know of Luke. He was such a humble author that all, all the meticulous and careful writing that he did about Jesus and his teaching and then the early church and its expansion, the one thing he writes nothing about is himself. He, he wants to just fade into the background because this has nothing to do with him and it has everything to do with Jesus and his glory. But he was a prolific and careful writer and a firsthand witness and uh, co-worker in the gospel with Paul in the New Testament missionary works. There is a shift in the writing of, of Luke from the gospel that he writes to the acts of the apostles. The gospels focus particularly on the works and the teaching of Jesus Christ and how he is fulfilling the prophecies of the Old Testament to be the Messiah that was to come and that he has come and that he has finished and accomplished those things. It's very important that when Jesus dies on the cross, one of the things that he calls out from the cross as he is dying is that it is finished. Which means that all that was laid out, all that was spoken of in the Old Testament that the Messiah was to do had been accomplished by Jesus. 
It was not that he had done most of it, and now the rest of it is up to you and I. But what was necessary for salvation was fully accomplished by Jesus Christ on the cross. And in his resurrection from the dead, death is overcome, and salvation is now possible to us, which we're going to come to here in just a moment. He also says, Jesus says, that there is a new covenant being established in his blood. This is a major part of the shift between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The new covenant in his blood is salvation that is accomplished through the cross. So there is continuity and there is discontinuity between the Gospels and the book of Acts, between the two parts of what Luke writes. There is discontinuity in the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. The old covenants that we have in the Old Testament were each conditional. They were covenants where God said, if you do this, then I will do this. If you honor and obey me, then I will bless you and give you a place in the land and so on and so forth. There's many, many chapters of if-then statements, conditional statements in the Old Testament. But if you've read your Old Testament much, you know that Israel always fails. Even I was just reading in Nehemiah the other day in my devotions, and they even they pull out the council, and they get all the elders, they get every, they sign a big document, and the next chapter is about them going off the rails. I mean, it's just such a, a very typical chapter for the Old Testament, but we see it also in our own lives. We know that we so passionately want to serve after Christ. And then later that same week, we're, we're, we're not doing what we said we were going to do because we are sinners. The new covenant is an unconditional covenant. Grace and the salvation that comes to us is always by grace. But the thing about the new covenant is all of the conditions of our salvation are met in Jesus Christ. They're all met in him. Everything that was if is done by Christ Jesus. He satisfies all the demands of the law and lays down his life that by grace, this salvation is made possible to us and we simply receive it by faith because all of the conditions have been met by Jesus. When you feel totally inadequate for the salvation of God, you are right. You are inadequate. That's why we turn to Jesus and we cast ourselves before his cross and ask for his forgiveness and by grace, we are saved. And yet there is continuity between the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts and the old and the new covenants in that it is the same God and it is the same kingdom of God and it is the same grace. It is promises that were made and promises that were fulfilled, promises that began with Israel that are not cut off but are expanded and grow outward. One of the examples that's given to us by Paul of this is a, a trunk that is growing up and branches are broken off and new branches are grafted in and it becomes a larger and larger work of the Lord but it is the same work of the Lord. Lord. But there is discontinuity and that the temple and the festivals and the ceremonial and the civil law of the Old Testament are fading away in the book of Acts until they will completely pass away in 70 AD where the temple is destroyed and these old things have passed away and are no longer necessary to our salvation and what God's plan is in the New Testament. They are replaced with an increased presence of the Holy Spirit with baptism as an expression of faith, with a local church of diverse people far outside just the Jews, and the outward missionary enterprise to go to all the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And yet there is continuity in the word of God. The Old Testament is not tossed overboard, but it becomes the foundation of what God is doing in the New Testament. It is the same salvation at a different stage of fulfillment. And so we are now in the flow of what begins here in the book of Acts, which is the church age, the new covenant period. The genre of what is being written here in the book of Acts is that of history and preaching. There's a lot of preaching in the book of Acts, uh, something that's important. If preaching matters, we're going to see it here in the early church, and we see a lot of preaching in the early church. We see a lot of history, a lot of just record of what happened, and so it is necessary in our interpreting and in our examining of the book of Acts to, to be able to differentiate what is descriptive and what is prescriptive. So what is just describing that which happened, and what is telling us this ought to continue happening? Because these are not all the same in the book of Acts, and we'll spend much time talking about that. It is a period of enormous transition, but all that happens in the book of Acts is not normative. When you go through a great period of transition in your life, the transition takes you from one place to the other. But thankfully, the period of transition is not always the norm. When we move from one place to the other, we have to pick up and a lot happens between one place to the other. But when we land on the other end, that is our destination. And so the book of Acts is taking us from the work of the Lord in the Old Testament to the work of the Lord in the church period. So I would ask you to stand with me this morning as we read Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, and we look at these verses. Acts chapter 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Verse three, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight, and while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. All right. Well, I'd like you to turn over to the end of the Gospel of Luke as well. We're going to spend some time reading there, Luke 24, because what we see here in the first 11 verses of Acts is an overlap with the last about 15 verses of the Gospel of Luke. And so he stitches these two together nicely to have volume one lead right into volume two. And so when we look at 
Luke chapter 24, we see from verse 36 and following an encounter of Jesus standing in their midst after his resurrection from the dead. He is there to prove his resurrection reality. And this is a very important part and something that's skipped over a lot in the ministry and the, the work of Jesus is his appearance and his um, evidences and his teaching to those who saw him after his resurrection. It was no small amount of work that Jesus did after he came back from the dead. And so here in Luke, we have him standing for one of the early times in his in the, in the presence of his disciples, trying to prove to him his resurrection reality. He asked them to touch him. Come, I, I'm real, I'm not a ghost. If you saw somebody die, and you know you saw them die, and then you saw them alive, it would scare you too. And so don't, uh, don't, don't take this lightly. They want to come up and see that he's not a ghost. And it's something interesting about the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that in all the glory of his resurrection, he retains one important thing, and that is the scars of the cross in his hands and in his feet. Something that we should never forget because Jesus will bear those always, apparently into eternity, that we will never forget the scars on his hands and feet that were the cause of our salvation. And so he has them come and see and touch these things. He has them give him some fish to eat so that they can see that he has indeed resurrected from the dead. But it says in verse 45 something very, very important. Luke chapter 24, verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So as Jesus is appearing and ministering to them after his resurrection, he begins to work in their hearts and work in their minds to be able to put together the pieces of all that has happened in his ministry and what he has taught them from his word. And one of the most important things that they finally grasp and put together is what he was saying when he said three times to them that he was going to suffer, die, and be raised on the third day. They never really understood understood what he was saying when before his crucifixion but after his resurrection they understand what he was saying and they begin to have the light bulb come on because their hearts are illumined by the work of God it is really important to understand that it says in verse 45 he opened their minds if you want to understand what the Lord is doing in this world, it's not just a matter of you gurring down and pressing in, but it's a matter of you getting on your knees and asking God to help you understand what he's doing in this world, that he might grasp by the work of God's spirit what he is doing. Now, they were making progress. It was years of progress, years of learning, years of grasping, years of putting, pulling pieces together, but not having it form into one clear picture until this moment. But what happens in this place is that he tells them that they must wait. They're very excited at this point in time, and they want to go out and minister immediately, but we're going to see the same thing here at the end of the Gospel of Luke as we do at the beginning of the book of Acts, that they cannot go out and do the work of God without the power of God. None of us can do the work of the Lord without the power of the Lord. And so even though they have a new understanding and they're very excited, it's not enough. He tells them to go back to Jerusalem and to wait in the city until they are clothed with power on high. You can never do the work of God without the power of God, ever. 
No matter whether you are teaching a child Sunday school class, trying to talk to Jesus with your coworker, or something that you consider much greater than that, every time we must come to the Lord and ask him for his strength to be able to do his work. Because when we get on our knees and ask God for his strength to do his work, he gets the glory. Because we know that it wasn't our charisma or our personal talent that accomplished anything. It's what the Lord did, and for that we can give thanks and rejoice. Well, let's turn back to Acts chapter 1. As we're stitching together these two books, we see in Acts chapter 1 verse 2 that commands are given. Until the day he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Commands. These were not suggestions. These were not, this is my pattern of life. It would be a good idea if you walked in this pattern, but they are commands. Commands that in the end of the gospel of Matthew, Jesus calls down all authority. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Go and do this. He commands with great authority. And the two things that he commands, first is for us to go and to proclaim the gospel and make disciples. Those that will follow after Jesus. They will leave behind other things and follow after Jesus and that they will go out in a missionary enterprise. We're very used to this in some ways and talking about this in the church. But in this day, if you were to follow after God, it meant coming to the Jews and becoming a Jew and entering into the way of the Jews and to go out and to be a part of, even to eat with Gentiles or non-Jewish people was forbidden. This missionary enterprise was a radically new thing to go outside and to bring others into what it means to follow after Christ and not just to follow in what it means to be a Jew. And there's going to be much that we talk about this as we go through the 12 chapters, but let's at least start there. The outward press of a missionary enterprise and then to baptize those people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is something, again, that's going to be repeated over and over and over in the book of Acts. We're going to talk a lot about baptism because there is a consistent and unbroken pattern in the early church related to the command of Christ to do this. In verse 3, he presents themselves to him. Verse 3, he presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So the account we have in the end of the Gospel of Luke is one of those accounts. But it's important to see here that Jesus was ministering and working amongst them as the resurrected Christ for over a month after his resurrection. It wasn't just a quick appearance and out and one person saw him and told other people about it. There's much about the ministry of Jesus after his resurrection. We are told in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6, that there was one occasion where 500 people were uh, present for his teaching. And when Paul writes about it, he makes sure to include that many of those people were still alive when he wrote the letter to the Corinthians. So if they wanted to go meet somebody else other than him that had actually heard Jesus and seen him resurrected, you can go find one of these people because they're still alive. 20 plus years after this incident. And so there is much to be said about Jesus in his resurrection before his ascension. But verse 4 is about the waiting period. 
It's so standard for us in our excitement to want to go run straight out and do something without waiting on the Lord. But it is the constant, constant, constant pattern of Scripture that God calls for us to wait on Him. Almost never does God do His work on our same timetable. You should expect to have to wait on the Lord. You should expect that when you want to just go out and burn the barn down, that you are not on God's timetable. And he wants you to slow down in order to teach and impress upon you your absolute necessity to depend on him. And so though they have an understanding now and a zeal, God's word to them is to go and wait. And to wait for what? Verse 5. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so he speaks to them about John's baptism and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Let's begin with John's baptism. If you go back to the early Gospels, when John the Baptist comes on the scene, there's a reason why he's called John the Baptist. He was baptizing people in a baptism of repentance. And though there were many ceremonial cleansings in the Old Testament, there was nothing quite like the baptism of John. He was calling for people to repent of their sins and to believe in a Messiah that was to come, that was soon in coming. And that this repentance of sins and belief in Christ Jesus was symbolized by them being put under the water and brought out of the water. A a particular ceremony of, of cleansing. And this exact same ministry of preaching repentance and belief is carried on by Jesus when John the Baptist is put to death. It's the same ministry. It's very clear in the Gospels that he continues on. And his disciples, though Jesus did not baptize, all of his disciples baptized. As they called people to repentance and to belief, after they came to salvation, they were baptized. And they were baptized in the same way that you see baptisms occur in this church uh, very often. Matthew chapter 3 Verses 11 through 12 says this. This is John the Baptist preaching. Matthew 3, 11 and 12. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. It was the powerful message of John the Baptist. And it was speaking about something yet to come. That he was doing something, but something greater was going to come. And the greater thing was the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so this baptism of John by water, similar to the baptism that we continue on now in the pattern of Christ Jesus, it has no real substance. Nothing is really happening to a person when they're put under that water. It's a symbol and a declaration of something that has already really happened. They have already been forgiven of their sins by grace through the, through the justification of Jesus Christ. And now they're coming here before you to bear witness to the watching world that this is who I now am. And symbolism matters. The symbolism of the Lord's Supper matters, even though we are not partaking of the real body of Christ or the real blood of Christ. We are not crucifying him again. This is, these are sermons for another day. 
But in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, there is the real presence of God. There is real substance. It is the work of the Holy Spirit in a real way. And John is telling them that this is soon and coming, and Jesus is telling them to go and wait for this filling of the Holy Spirit. But we need to take a moment to talk about this because this phrase, baptism of the Holy Spirit, has become greatly corrupted uh, in our time. It has been terribly abused by the modern Pentecostal movement, and when most people think of baptism of the Holy Spirit or they go look this up on the internet, they're going to see uh, people being struck in the face and falling over backwards and people screaming at other people and people in catatonic states and people jerking and laughing and rolling all over the floor. Let me tell you that if you are expecting to see some of this in the book of Acts, you're not going to find it because none of it is in the book of Acts. This was first displayed in frontier America at the turn of the 19th century by revivalist minister James McGreedy. Uh, Writing about this, uh, George Martin says, In sermons evoking the odor of flaming sulfur and summoning the strains of heavenly harps, he called on people to experience a new birth so dramatic and glorious that they would forever be able to identify and relate the exact time and circumstances of its occurrences. His preaching often stimulated uncommon emotional displays, including copious crying, screaming, and an exercise in which persons, quote, slain in the spirit, fell to the ground, where they uh, lay still as corpses or writhed in apparent agony while groaning and praying and crying out for mercy. In 1801, McGreedy put together the first ever American large camp meeting with 10,000 plus people in attendance. And he continued to press this type of ministry as far as he could press it. As this, Martin continues to write, as this message pierced vulnerable hearts and occasionally broke through the proud armor of uh, sightseers and scoffers, the wounded engaged in remarkable demonstrations of, quote, acrobatic Christianity. At times, the, quote, slain in the spirit numbered into the uh, hundreds and had to be dragged aside and laid in rows to prevent their being trodden underfoot by ecstatic multitudes. Others experienced violent spasms in which they jerked their heads rapidly from side to side or whipped their bodies forward and back with such force that kerchiefs and hairpins flew from the heads of women and still others danced or ran or rolled or erupted into fits of laughing and barking and ecstatic uh, moaning. This type of thing uh, continued on in the ministry of McGreedy until it, until it petered out, but it continued on with other people's ministries. John Wesley was well known for this. Uh, these types of ecstatic things became so out of control in his ministry that he eventually pressed to dial them back because nothing else was occurring other than these type of experiences in his meetings. They were carried on strongly by Charles Finney in what is often called the Second Great Awakening. Charles Finney writes about these things because he pressed all of this in his ministry in a book called Lectures on Revival of Religion. And this is very telling. He writes this, In lectures, Finney expressly denied there was anything supernatural about revival. Quote, It is not a miracle or dependent on a miracle in any sense, he he insisted. It is a purely philosophical result of the right use of the constituted means. 
as much as any other effect produced by the application of means. Jonathan Edwards felt revivals had to be prayed down. Charles Finney believed they could be worked up within people, and he developed a clear-cut system for doing so. To Finney, the primary object of effective preaching is to cause one's hearers to make a decision for Christ. And to that end, any device within the bounds of common decency is not only acceptable but recommended. This is important folks. And it's important to know that this book is not a small book. It sold 12,000 copies on its first day and it has never gone out of print. It is, you can go buy it off of Amazon right now for $28 and you yourself can learn how to manufacture your very own hysterical man-made revival. And that is something that is important because it's happening still today. If you don't think that you can manipulate people in the name of God and have all kinds of things happen, you're wrong. There are manipulators. There always have been manipulators. People that say and do things to cause people to work into a frenzy and say that that is the work of the Lord when it's not the work of the Lord. It is very, very important to see that down through history, they were not alone. There was always a counter. The Lord always brought someone to speak the truth in light of what was happening. For McGreedy, the counter to him was Jonathan Edwards and the preaching and the praying and the authentic Christianity that he brought. For Wesley, there was George Whitfield and his authentic preaching and godly prayerfulness and authentic conversion. During the time of Finney, his counter was Charles Spurgeon and the authentic conversion and preaching of the gospel. It is not that the Holy Spirit means no emotion. We're, we're just going to see. We're, this is going to take many weeks for us to go through this. There is always an emotional aspect to coming to Christ. Always. And that's not what I'm saying. But there is also a way to abuse these things by going at it in a non-biblical, non-Christian way that is unlike the book of Acts. And so a big part of our study is going to be discerning what is the real power of God? What was really happening in the early church? What is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? It is emphatically not what we have been talking about here. You will not see anyone screaming hysterically, ro rolling around, laughing uncontrollably, acting in a, in a literally a, a, a spastic type of a way anywhere in the New Testament, in the book of Acts especially. Where you do see this, and I'll be careful in saying this, but I think it's worth and important to say. Where you do see actions like this are in the Gospels. And where do you see them? You see them by those that are possessed by demons. And so we have to be very careful in our discernment of these things, but it is very possible to see people that are under the influence of something, but it is not the influence of the Holy Spirit. The influence of the Holy Spirit we'll see upon the people in the book of Acts has the one primary outcome. And that primary outcome is a joyful boldness to go out and proclaim the name of Jesus as Savior. They will not stop telling people about Jesus. And it doesn't matter if they're jailed, if they're literally put to death by the sword, if they are starving to death, they will not stop telling people about Jesus. And they couldn't do that beforehand. They were scared to death beforehand. But afterwards, when they're filled by God's Spirit, they go out and they cannot stop telling people boldly about Jesus. They have a passion to love and to serve other people. 
One of the, this is a reason why Jesus said what we have written on this, this verse over here and what characterizes the New Testament constantly is the emphatic, undying love of Christians for one another. That since they have been forgiven by Jesus Christ, they are willing to forgive each other every petty difference and major flaw. And they love each other. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, they die to themselves. By the power of the Holy Spirit, the enslaving strength of sin is broken in their lives. That they might go and live in in radically different ways, selling their possessions to help one another, dying to themselves, and loving the Lord Jesus in a totally different way. A community is formed by the power of the Holy Spirit that is known as the church. The Holy Spirit becomes the seal of salvation and eternal life. The Holy Spirit comforts teaches, disciples, gives gifts, strengthens, and guides individual believers from where they are all the way into the kingdom of God. In verse 8 of Acts chapter 1, it is first spoken of the power, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You are not powerful enough to go and do the work of the Lord without the Lord. When you feel the call to go and bear witness to someone for the sake of Jesus, the first thing you have to do is ask for God to fill you with his spirit, to give you the strength and the words and the gifting and the ability to go and bear witness to these things. And so this is exactly what they do. They go out with the power of the Holy Spirit, not their own charisma, not seeking to stir up an emotional turmoil, but to help people clearly understand who God is. In verse 9, after Jesus finished speaking about these things, just suddenly he is taken up from them. Without notice, without warning, he begins to rise in what seems like a person letting a balloon go, and it just goes up to heaven until it is taken away or hidden by a cloud, it says. And they are looking up, astonished, rejoicing in these things, not understanding what is happening, but every time that they don't understand what is happening in the New Testament, and it's necessary that they know, something happens to let them know. So similar to the resurrection grave, two angels, angels being the messengers of the Lord, appear and they explain to them what has happened. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So why do I believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ? Because angels proclaimed it at his ascension. That's why I believe in the second coming of Christ. The Bible and throughout the New Testament speaks about him coming again, but it begins at this moment when angels say he will come again just as he went. As he ascended, he will descend a second time because we have to understand what has happened with Jesus here. Jesus was eternally existing. He is the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. He has always existed in glory and in his perfection. When he was incarnate, he descended or humbled himself intentionally from his glory to be here and live amongst us in the flesh, God with us, Emmanuel. He lived a perfect and sinless life amongst us, preaching, teaching, fulfilling all righteousness. He suffered, was crucified, buried, and raised again from the dead. He bore witness for 40 days amongst many hundreds of people and then he ascended back to the glory from which he had previously descended. 
And when he comes again, though it will be in a similar manner from heaven and in an unannounced way, it will not be with humility, but with great power and glory to judge the earth. So I urge you this morning in this first sermon on the book of Acts that you might believe these things that you might believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and that you would be earnestly filled with the Holy Spirit, that the boldness and the power and the love of God would fill your heart in such a way that you are never the same, that you're not just a little bit different from your unbelieving neighbors, but you are totally different and that your life lived is in a radically different way and that you want to go out and tell others about Jesus Christ because of the difference that he has made in your life. I pray that you will live in light of these things this week and that we would encourage one another in the Lord towards love and good deeds that we, as the church, that we would follow after Christ this week. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we love you. We praise you this day. And we pray, God, that you would be at work in our midst, that we would understand more in the weeks to come of what it means to be the church And that we would gather together in the name of Jesus, praying every week for the filling of your spirit and understanding that we can never do the work of God without the power of God. That you would give us a discerning heart to see the difference between what it is that this world is after and what you would have us to be about. And so, Father, we pray for work that happens in this place that cannot be attributed to any person, that it cannot be attributed to any formula or any uh, amount of money or any charisma from any particular person, but that people walk out from this church saying, I have encountered the living God, that there is a Savior, that I can be forgiven of my sins, I can have new life in Christ, and that we would deeply encourage and pray for one another in these things. We pray, Lord, for your continued work in our time. We know that you have promised that you would be with us always, even until the end of the age. And we ask you, God, to fulfill this promise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.